This is Ask a Biologist, a program about the living world, and I'm Dr. Biology. Okay, it's time for True Confessions. In the past year, we've been busy working on new features and content for our companion website. This is the one that's askabiologist.asu.edu. We've also been visiting a lot of guests on the Ask a Biologist program. What we haven't been doing is keeping up with the editing and releasing of the shows. So over the coming months, we'll be releasing these previously recorded shows along with current programs. Up next is an interview with biologist, businessman, and mountain climber Bruce Hammock. It's a show where biology meets business. It could have been called Business Life or Life and Business. Either way, the story is about biology, basic research, and how it can turn into a multi-million dollar project that could one day lead to a new drug to treat pain, blood pressure, diabetes, as well as heart disease. Welcome to Ask a Biologist, Professor Hammock. Thank you, Dr. Biology. You probably don't know it, but I've talked about you and your research group on this program in an earlier show. Was it about scorpions? You got it. It all had to do with scorpions, which are very common in the desert here, and they're very interesting venoms. What I described as having a weapon that could be set to stun, yes. or another one that could be set to kill. Now, you call them a pretoxin, venom light, and the real toxin that kills. Have you learned anything more about the pretoxin and toxin in scorpions? Well, it's pretty much the same story. We used a very large scorpion, Androctonus, from South Africa, as well as the centroides that I actually collected pretty close to your university. This large scorpion, Androctonus, is a lot easier to see because it's actually quite a large animal. It's an attack scorpion. It, it doesn't hide. So it's four inches, five inches, even six inches long. And most scorpions are very secretive, like your bark scorpion. But this attack scorpion, if it sees a potential predator, will attack the predator and actually spray its pre-venom into the eyes of the predator. Ouch. Well, I was also wondering, do they use these in some cases to scare things away that they're not really trying to kill, but they just say, hey, stay away, rather than try to kill them? I would expect that, although you know, biology doesn't work like this, that the scorpion is in a sense thinking, I have this very, very expensive venom, and I have a very cheap venom. I'm willing to use the cheap venom to scare something away, but if I'm really terrified that this bird is going to eat me, I'm going to use the real venom and kill it. Okay. Well, I introduced you as a biochemist, but you could also be called an entomologist because your work has been with insects. What do you describe yourself as? Well, it depends. If I'm around a chemist, I'm a biologist. If I'm around a biologist, well, then I'm a chemist. That way I get away with a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that. I think I do the same thing. Well, your work, you started out in basic research. Yes, you know, basic research to me is really critical. You know, you don't think about it, but it's pretty much the building blocks of what a lot of other research is based on. Yes. And if we don't have that, we lose a lot of the materials we need to build these drugs or create these drugs or design these drugs, whatever term you want to use, or in some cases, pesticides. So what I want to know is how did you move from pest control to pain control? I think it's been really fun, although it was hard to see from the beginning, that we were working on a green pesticide many years ago that affects insect development. And actually, the compound is still used. You can buy it at the drugstore that we worked on 30, 35 years ago. 
But the enzyme, some of the enzyme systems we were looking at in insects that let caterpillars turn into butterflies, we asked, do they occur in mice and rats? Surprisingly, the answer was yes, and it also occurs in tomatoes and potatoes. And we just began to wonder what they do. We still don't know what they do in plants, but in mammals, they control blood pressure, pain, and inflammation. Okay, now you brought up a really good point. We're talking about insects, which a lot of people say, why on earth are you working on insects? Because as a species, humans, we're pretty egocentric. We always want to know, how is this going to help me? What, you know, what's the good part for, for humans? You're showing right now you were working with insects, and it actually moved right into humans. Yes. So working with insects was fun just because how caterpillars turn into butterflies is one of the things almost every kid in the world, including me, since I've never grown up, is interested in. But insects are also those creatures that eat about 60% of the world's food supply. They also transmit malaria, encephalitis, some really terrible diseases. So there's a very practical reason to work on insects in addition to learning how caterpillars turn into butterflies. But also this very basic work then begins to have many practical applications down the line. In this case, the insect work has led directly to drugs that may help reduce pain and inflammation. That's pretty amazing. You were talking today in your, your lecture, and you mentioned that it, it's been at least 20 years since a drug company or another research group has actually done this basic research to bring a new drug for control of these particular areas. Yes, that's, that's true, that we have a lot of drugs that have a new name, but they're a slightly different structure. But a new mechanism of action is really attractive because a physician then could tailor that drug to an individual person who has a particular ailment. They also could combine this drug with older drugs to uh, reduce blood pressure or reduce inflammation in a more sophisticated way with fewer side effects. So from butterflies to blood pressure. Yes. Okay, can you explain how this drug works? We have a group of fats. We don't think of fats like this. We have a group of fats that actually are what we call chemical mediators. They're controlling childbirth. These fats are controlling blood pressure. They're controlling pain. They're controlling an awful lot of biology. So the compounds that we have made control the fats that control the biology. Oh, okay. Now, do the fats have a name? The names get really long. They're derivatives of arachidonic acid, and they're called eicosanoids. But if you look on the label of the new baby food bottles, eicosanoids are there. They're called arachidonic acid. Okay. You can see it on the local store shelves. So biology is right in your local store. All right. You have not only been doing this basic research, you've not only gone from butterflies to blood pressure, you also learned a lot along the way. It's been really fun because when you find a, a compound that could be a new drug, you're also finding a probe to ask, how does biology work? And so we've been really interested and very surprised, for instance, to find that these compounds dramatically reduce pain. Not only the pain that comes from inflammation, like you've cut your finger, but really terrible pain that can come from diabetes or from a burn or bone cancer. In this process, you're a scientist, 
you know, scientists, we consider ourselves kind of purists a lot of time. You know, the, it's the for the good of science. It's the part of learning. It's the, well, you're a mountaineer. Why do you do it? Because it's there. You want to climb that mountain. You actually created a company, and it's called Aret, which is A-R-E-T-E, which is, is that French? Yes. It's a French mountaineering term. But it also is dead fish backbone. Oh. But mountaineers notice that sharp ridges look kind of like a dead fish backbone. Oh, okay. That's not very aesthetic. All right. So, yeah. So, to be clear, it's uh, a term that says sharp or steep ridge. And I was curious, why did you pick this name for your company? My kids and I were coming down from a mountain called Bear Creek Spire, which is one of my favorite mountains. And we were talking about what would be a good name if I started a company. And we looked back at what we climbed, which was the northeastern route of Bear Creek Spire. We thought, a rut. That's a nice name. I bet nobody's used it before. So it wasn't so much that this has been a sharp and steep learning curve or a sharp and steep climb in the world of business. We did that afterwards, and of course, you can make all sorts of little analogies like that. But no, it, would, it actually was just a really good day climbing a really nice mountain. When doing my research, I was looking at what you estimated it costs to bring a drug to the market, which means th- so the doctor can prescribe it or you could find it at the local drugstore. And the number was amazing to me because it went from $700 million to $1.2 billion. And even though we talk about billions of dollars in the news these days as if it's commonplace, this is real money. I mean, really a lot of money. How do you get that kind of money to bring a drug to market? Got me. <laughs> We've been able to raise about $50 million to get the drug through what's called phase two clinical trials. But it will have to be a big pharmaceutical company that then takes it from there. It's extraordinarily expensive to move through all of the human safety uh, tests needed to move a drug to market. And most never make it. Most of these materials will, in fact, fail along the way. And it's not necessarily for the money. It's because of the, they, they find a side effect or something else. That's they amazing. find a side effect or the, the big company decides that the patient population at the end will not be able to pay enough for the drug to be able to pay back the research cost. Right. If it takes $1.2 billion just to bring it to market and, and probably other costs are in there, you've got to make that much money back or yes. it's not worth doing, which is Bringing me to another important part, in reading about this drug, this the type that you're working on, the manufacturing of it seems to be much more compatible with lower costs. In other words, it doesn't cost as much to make it. And in particular, I was interested because uh, I think it was mentioned that developing countries could probably produce this drug as well, which is a real issue. You know, it's yes. fine for rich countries like the United States or Canada or, or England, say, to be able to do this. But what happens when you want to get this drug to a developing country? How does that work? Why is it so much better, do you think, for or has the potential to be so much better? The chemistry, although I like to think of my work as very sophisticated and that I have the most wonderful students and postdocs, this is very, very simple chemistry. So the compounds that are being developed in the U.S. Are, are quite good compounds. The cost of the drug will, of course, incorporate the development cost. But the actual cost of the drug itself is dirt cheap. There are analogs of this that are basically free to make. 
They can be made in the country with very, very low technology. They're also very, very potent in that tiny amounts of the compound will be biologically effective. So I'm very optimistic that it will only be sociological barriers we have to face in moving these compounds into developing countries. And if we look at a lot of Africa, for example, once you get past HIV, AIDS, and infant diarrhea, the new problems of many of these countries are the problems of social transition, which means obesity, diabetes, high blood pressure. And I think we can really help there. When I looked at your list of publications, you have over 700 publications. I mean, this is phenomenal. But I also want to mention that you have 30 people or at least 30 people in your laboratory. So this isn't a small... It's not a small operation. No, this is a big lab. What's it like running a big lab? Because, you know, if you went to the usual person on the street and said, you know, let's describe a scientist. First of all, they put us in white lab coats and, and they have us behind a bench and probably not mountaineering. But the other thing they do is they usually think that you're sitting down there doing the experiments day in and day out and that you're the only one doing them. And maybe you have a helper or two. But in your lab, there must be a lot of experiments going on. Yeah, well, there, there are lots of different ways of doing science. And luckily, science is very diverse. So you've got people who work by themselves, people who work in small groups. I happen to have a very large group of people. It's a lot of fun because I have all sorts of students and postdocs talking to me, asking questions, and they teach me an awful lot more than I teach them. But we also work a lot collaboratively with other laboratories at Davis. So the idea that we're trying to do science at interface between fields rather than uh, focusing in one discipline is what I found really, really interesting. But it's critical, Dr. Biology, that we've got different kinds of scientists because there are people that work on one area in a very focused discipline. There are others of us that have never grown up, and we like to play in multiple areas. And both kinds of science are very, very important to society. I think the best part is to think about it as playing. It could be considered serious play, but nonetheless, it's the idea that it really is fun. It is delightful. And what I worry about sometimes is the word finally gets out that the best job you could ever have is a biologist. And then it's going to be tougher for me to get a job or for someone else coming (laughs) along because everybody will be doing it. And it really is amazing. But then they'll find out about the pay, Dr. Biology. (laughs) Well, actually, you know, you mentioned uh, you have a $50 million company. Well, you had to raise $50 million for this company. But how much money did you actually get out of this development so far? Not much. The university paid me a a hot new check of $6,000 for our royalties this year. So if you're going to do this as an academic entrepreneur, do it for fun. (laughs) Right. And so that comes back to the fact that, yes, it's not necessarily you're going to get rich, although that it can happen. It can happen. I think the best part is if you like or love what you're doing and you can do that every day, you're really not working, right? Don't let that word get out. When you do 700 papers, man, even if it's five pages per paper, that's a lot of writing. Do you do all the writing? No. That my, my job with students and postdoctorals in the lab is to teach them. And usually the first paper is very painful for both of us, but later they do the writing and I do the editing. Right, right, that red ink. And it's interesting because, well, you and I are old enough to remember red ink and before computers. Yes. And when you saw those things, it was very painful to do the corrections. But with a computer today, 
You know, I absolutely love being able to give my work to someone that is willing to read it and give me their comments because the corrections aren't that big a deal, and we really do learn by doing. Yes, that's true. In the writing process and in the science process, do you enjoy writing? I do enjoy the writing because I learned from my major professor it's a trick to go back and re-examine the data again and think about the data very hard. So the writing mechanically is a pain sometimes, but the intellectual process of thinking about what it means and the fallacies of your thoughts are really valuable and fun. Right. So you have to tell this story. Even if it's science, you're telling this story, and you have to make sure in this case the facts, the information you gathered, make sense. And you have to tell it in a way that someone can understand. So, But not only understand, Dr. Biology, they've got to find it fun. So I think you hit a key point that if you just present facts, that's your obligation to science, but it's boring as hell. But if you tell a story, it's interesting and memorable, and it makes you think about your data really hard and ask, do they actually support the story you're telling? Right. And not only do you get to write, you get to have pictures as well. And you, sometimes there are diagrams. Uh, in your case, you show this really beautiful structure of what you're working on. And uh, it's, you know, one of these 3D structures of the compound. And I actually drew a little sketch because I can now remember a little green ball, little blue ball for the parts of the structure, this, this um, protein structure. And there's two components yeah. It's a dimer, which means two parts. Right. And it's an anti-parallel dimer, so one's going this way and one's going this way. Right. So we have a little ball, a big ball, a little ball, and a big ball. Right, and they, they line up with each other. Yeah. But it's really beautiful, and it's lacy. It's a cool way to look at these structures. But, you know, on, on that, you talk about the picture of the enzyme we were working on. I think it really points out how many different fields come together. That was an X-ray picture. So the ability to take a picture of a single protein that is far too small to ever see in a microscope could only happen because other scientists were working in the field of x-rays, still others working in the field of optics, still others working in the field of computer science to be able to generate that pretty picture that I showed. Right. So not only do your science, but be willing and able to talk to other scientists and learn from each other and use their skills to build our bank of knowledge, thinking of a business type of uh, term. All right, well, let's, let's talk a little bit about your hobby here. You like to climb mountains. I like to climb mountains. For a number of years, I taught climbing at UC, but they decided that I was too old, so now I teach whitewater kayaking. <laughs> okay, well, I, I don't know if that one is better than the other, actually. And when you talk about mountain climbing, uh, you showed a, actually a photo of your son who is actually climbing a rock face. We're not talking about just backpacking in this case, right? No, that was, that was Mount Humphreys in the eastern Sierra, an absolutely lovely mountain. Right. Okay, well, this is, this is serious stuff. Um, now, on Ask a Biologist, I ask three questions of all my scientists. And these That's are scary. Yeah, it is, isn't it? It's not like you're in competition, but they usually, you know, reveal a little bit about yourself. The first one's a pretty simple one. Do you remember when you knew you were going to be a scientist? Was there an aha moment or was there a spark somewhere? There were probably just lots of moments that from my earliest memories, I liked to collect insects. I enjoyed looking at wildflowers. I just absolutely loved biology. 
And then that matured to a degree in forestry and working in entomology. But if there was one instant, it was reading a paper in Scientific American by a man named Carol Williams, son of a Southern Baptist preacher who thought he could remove all ants from picnics with a magical golden oil. And I found his paper really inspiring. And in a way, I'm still working in the same area. What is your favorite insect species? That's a hard question because I don't have one. My favorite yesterday was a turquoise ant that we found in Sedona. I'd never seen anything like it. And I asked your ant biologist, and everyone gave me a different answer. Really? At any rate, it's a really, really interesting quarter-inch-long metallic turquoise creature. It's really fascinating. Did you collect it, or did you take a picture? I should have, but no, I didn't. And last night, I went on a walk out in the desert, and I was looking at antlions. So these are little creatures that dig the triangle pit in the ground. They are so cute. And you can follow their trails across the desert as they move from one pit to another. Um, and then as a kid, of course, I raised praying mantises, wheel bugs. I guess maybe my favorite insect pet was a wheel bug, and I'd raised it from an egg. I thought it was my friend, and then one day when it was about an inch and a half long, it decided I might taste good, and um, it was no longer my friend. <laughs> really? It bit you? It did. Oh, so describe a wheel bug. I, I'm afraid I don't, I don't know what a wheel well, bug is. Well, the technical name is a regiviad. It's a bug, which means it's got a long snout like a drinking straw. And it has what looks like a gear on its thorax. So they stick this snout into other insects, inject a fluid that dissolves the prey, then they suck it out. Ooh. And I thought that he was really into eating other insects, but one day he decided I was tasty, and he left quite a little pit in my arm. Oh, so he wasn't really biting you. He actually injected some of that material, in this case probably an enzyme, that was breaking down the, the cells around there and turning you into a little stew. Yep, and then he slurped it right back up. Oh, well, I would say he's not your friend either. Uh, that's true. <laughs> I didn't squash him, though, Dr. Biology. Oh, well, that's... He was still a pet. That's very commendable. All right, let's switch to question two. This gets a little more challenging. I'm going to take away all your science. You can't be a biologist. You can't be a scientist of any type. What would you be or what would you do? Well, I'd like to think I would have spent my life climbing mountains, but the fact is if I had, I'd be dead because I'm not a very good mountain climber or kayaking, but I'd be dead because I'm not a very good kayaker. That's why I'm such a good teacher because I remember what it's like to be a beginner. Something from a somewhat different standpoint and yet related to what I do is a friend and I have been talking about starting a venture capital company where we try to fund very early stage science uh, because we have, at least in our area, I think a really good feel for what can be turned into a real product and what can't in a very, very limited field. And so rather than be a big venture capital company, that does thumbs up and thumbs down on a wide range of technologies would be, in fact, to focus in areas that a few of us really understood and try to help younger scientists move their technology into the private sector. Right. These venture capitalists are the ones that are the businessmen that, that have the money and they go out there and they say, what am I going to invest in? And when I do this investment, what am I going to get paid yes. in the end? And not always, and unfortunately, a lot of times, they don't have the science background. So this is great. So you're saying, okay, I'll take that expertise and make use of it. 
I'll buy that. That works. Or would you pay me to climb mountains? Um, well, you know, from reading about you, I think I'm going to pay you to be a venture capitalist. <laughs> but you, on, on Sundays, I'll let you climb, or Saturdays, you can climb mountains. But be careful, please. All right, the last question. And this could be really fun, and it's probably something you've been asked. What advice do you have for someone who wants to become a scientist? Or maybe someone who already knows they're a scientist, but they just need to know, what, what's the path I should take? I think the first thing is to look in the mirror and say, is it fun to be a biologist? If you find it fun, it's what you ought to do. Because it is, if you enjoy it, it's just an absolutely delightful career. You never have to grow up. Now, scientists, when they get together, always complain about their problems, and yet they're still doing it. And to really think, do I want to be a biologist? Do I really love the biology? And then it's clear sailing. You can't do anything else. I'm going to slip back to the, the business side. So your focus has always been in the world of science, but it turns out that you needed to take on a, a business component just to be able to move this, this drug further along. What has it been like to get into the world of business? I, I found most of the people in the venture field to be very professional, very competent, uh, very profit-driven because they're, in fact, obligated to the people that, in a sense, loaned them the money to invest. I did not find the universities to be particularly altruistic. They seemed to be uh, very greedy, uh, very self-centered, and in fact, very inefficient. So as a society, I think we need to figure out how do we make universities better able to transfer technology. Right. So maybe the universities aren't skilled. Maybe they aren't as educated as they think they are in this area. So maybe they need to go to school. <laughs> I think that one could argue that. Well, Bruce Hammack, it's been great. I really appreciate you taking the time, and I really enjoyed reading about you. It was just amazing. Thank you, Dr. Biology. You've been listening to Ask a Biologist, and my guest has been biochemist. No, maybe we call him an entomologist. And how about we just settle on biologist, Bruce Hammack from the University of California, Davis. The Ask a Biologist podcast is produced on the campus of Arizona State University and is recorded in the grassroots studio housed in the School of Life Sciences, which is a division of the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. And remember, even though our program is not broadcast live, you can still send us your questions about biology using our companion website. The address is askabiologist.asu.edu, or you can just Google the words Ask a Biologist. I'm Dr. Biology.